Welcome to this latest episode of The Banker's Plumber, Lessons Learned. In this episode, we'll be talking about size. Size matters. It really does. Inspiration for the thoughts I'll share today came from the collapse of Wirecard, the German payments processor. A sudden announcement that nearly €3 billion had gone missing and the company declares bankruptcy. Sudden, yes. Surprise, no. My view is that this is a case study in what happens when you get the basics wrong. Just quickly before we get into the details of this week's podcast, a word of thanks for the sponsor of this podcast, the Realisation Group in London. They're a financial services and fintech marketing agency. I've worked closely with them for the past couple of years. Colin Slight and the team there talk about being visible, being found and being successful. Well, today, a slight variation on the theme will be heard. I hope that's still of interest. And I thank Colin and the team for their support. Let's get going. This was a big loss and another very embarrassing chapter in the book of the failures of Germany, Inc. It has some similarities with Dieselgate, people making up the numbers, almost certainly committing fraud in a very planned way and thinking that they could get away with it. For any listeners who are not familiar with the case and the company, a quick summary. Wirecard is, or was, a payments processor. They run infrastructure that enables you to use your credit or debit card at points of sale, in stores and online. Grew like a weed, became something of a stock exchange darling, attracted investment from Japan's SoftBank, There were doubters along the way. The FT investigated, and there was a lot of short selling, i.e. folks taking bets that the share price was too high and would fall. It is highly likely that there was both premeditated fraud and collusion in this case. And I'd hazard a guess that some folks are going to be wearing orange jumpsuits sometime not so far away. This is not going to be a soup to nuts or forensic examination of things wirecard. The folks at the Financial Times have done a great job on that front already. For all of you who want all the gory detail, look up the FT and Dan McCrum in particular. With my banker's plumber's view of the world, there are some three important lessons to be learned from this debacle. And those lessons apply in banking and beyond banking. The key words here are control and size. Right at the start of looking at what went wrong, I think it is important to bust a myth. The myth in question is that when there is collusion and criminal energy at work, you can't defend yourself. Nearly a decade ago, the big global bank UBS had what is known in the trade as a rogue trader scandal, which saw them lose just over 2 billion US dollars after a London-based trader was found to have been hiding losses. This was the Kweku Adaboli case. When things blew up, the then UBS CEO, Oswald Ozzy Grubel, who had the status of a legend both in Switzerland and beyond, commented that if someone wants to act with criminal energy, then you can't do anything. That will always be the case in our business. Ozzy, with all respect to your front office chops and achievement, I have to say, nope, I disagree. You had the chance to catch this and missed it. 
And in the case of Wirecard, I'll sing that chorus again. This could have and should have been caught long before it was too late. And I'd add to that that although the investigative journalists at the FT did an outstanding job, those responsible could have stopped this without those formidable insights from the FT. What went wrong here is that process discipline failed. Before delving deeper into actual events, a little theory. As the saying goes, there is nothing as practical as a good theory. In this case, it's one out of the McKinsey playbook. Some years back, I worked at Goldman Sachs, who sent me from Zurich to New York for a couple of years. One of my responsibilities in New York was to work on something that at the time was called control improvement. Today, we would call that op risk or operational risk. That development in structured thinking and analysis was driven by the then partner in charge of operations, Larry Linden. Prior to Goldman, he'd been a partner at McKinsey. The Mackey's training meant he wanted to be very analytical about the processes that drove how Goldman operated day to day. One of the tools he introduced was a very structured way of analysing things that went badly wrong or were near misses. Under his guidance, we set some guidelines for things that needed a post-op or post-incident review. The goal of the review process was to then share the lessons learned with the global operations organisation in a way that enabled managers globally to identify with the general issue at hand and apply it in their team. This meant we had to work hard not to get a dismissive reaction of the kind, well, this thing happened in equities in Frankfurt, I do FX in Hong Kong, so what the hell? An integral part of the review was to make a black and white determination of the state of the process involved. For each case, was it a matter of A, there was an adequate procedure and it wasn't followed, or B, there was an inadequate procedure. In procedure, we'd include the tools used. Simple, but very effective. This was the McKinsey mindset at full tilt, reducing things to MISI, mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive. In simple terms, based on the standard, any incident had to be categorised as one or the other. So what happened with Wirecard? It seems there were at least three sins. Revenue fraud, balance sheet or asset fraud, and likely some pure theft or misappropriation of funds. For the first of those, the fake business was recorded with partners who were later found not to exist. For the second, in the balance sheet, some credit balances held with banks were simply made up, a fiction that was aided by some external help from a corporate services firm. For the third, in the dying months of the company, some very large and unusual payments were made to companies that it seems were connected to some of the corrupt insiders. Unusual insofar as they were large advance payments for future services. Two of the three of these sins are facts which were discovered by the FT in their investigation and at the very least suspected by market professionals who shorted Wirecard shares. To return to the musings of the great Aussie Grupal, it seems fair to say that there was a lot of criminal energy at work. Enough criminal energy, I would say, to defeat the usual three lines of defence of business, control functions 
an internal audit. But, and I will say this is a big but, there were still several control points where those responsible failed in their jobs. The regulators failed. When the FT views circulated and the short selling started, the Buffin, the German regulator, investigated. They seemed to be comforted by the fact that the CEO had recently bought shares and acted to ban or reprimand the evil short sellers. We could philosophize at length on short sellers. Are they some form of evil or an essential part of the financial market which at its core has the role of efficiently moving and allocating money and risk within an economy? I'll come out in favor of the latter. The external audit has failed. There is a very basic external audit responsibility, which is to validate the assets and liabilities shown in the balance sheet. For cash at bank or assets held by a third party, the standard operating procedure is for the external auditor to request a statement directly from that external party. In other words, to get an original document straight from the horse's mouth. This is basic. It is a necessary evil, and I can recall cursing the external auditors in days at Goldman Sachs in Zurich, who every year would complain about the lack of response from those outside parties and put me in the position of being the bad guy who called to nag and get that statement. My recollection of the process was that it was pretty much one size fits all. If an asset was above a certain amount, it had to be verified. The 2012 case of US broker PFG Best, where the CEO diverted the statements and then personally delivered fake ones, is a textbook example of why this process is necessary. That incident bankrupted the brokerage and the CEO committed suicide. Now for me, there is one case I would say does not need another check. If the statement is received via a swift statement from a bank and confirms the balance, the balance is genuine. If it doesn't come via SWIFT, then diligence is required. Of course, you would still want to further question any large balances. The Wirecard example, though, is one for which the standard operating procedure should not be in any doubt whatsoever. Get a statement from the source. Now, the exact details are not clear. Here is what we know. The major cash balances, all 3 billion euros, were not held directly with banks, but with some form of an escrow agent. A corporate services firm was involved. In early August 2020, the authorities in Singapore detained a local individual and charged him with falsifying statements. Even if the external auditors did receive a falsified statement, my banker's plumber BS detectors went into overdrive when I first heard the story and immediately suspected that this was like a case of crime in a multi-storey car park, wrong on many levels. Firstly, because the auditor should be saying, show me evidence of the money, show me a bank account statement. Second, because the money was allegedly being held in Asia. As a rule of thumb, it is unusual to hold major currency balances with banks that are not clear as in that currency. And even if it was in a local Asian currency, that big of a foreign currency balance for a company whose functional currency is euro is extremely unusual, as in six standard deviations to the right of usual. Third, the amount is huge as a share of the balance sheet. 
Whilst I am neither a trained auditor nor a forensic accountant, I have an advanced degree from the University of Life and the School of Hard Knocks. My first blush instinct was that that level of cash balances was just not normal. Not normal because it was just such an outright big number and because cash held at a bank is an unsecured receivable. That is accounting speak for if the person who owes you this money goes bankrupt, you are up creek, no paddle. In all the years I've been in banking, there's always been a focus on this number. Normal would be to lend the money out versus securities collateral using something called the repo market. So, I figured I'd look at the balance sheet of a peer company. I picked WorldPay. Call it luck if you will. In WorldPay's 2018 10K filing, a final submission in the US, cash at bank was 200 million of a balance sheet of 25 billion, less than 1%. By comparison, in the 2018 annual report, the good burgers of Wirecard had cash of 2.7 billion out of a 5.9 billion balance sheet. That's some 46% of the balance sheet and some 50 plus times as much as their peer, WorldPay. As my old math teacher used to say, QED, quad error demonstrandum. Who else do I think is guilty here? The non-exec board directors failed. Let's allow that there was some collusion and criminal energy, and so any exec directors are not going to be reliable. There are outside directors. The chairman is a grandee of the German finance establishment and a former board director of Credit Suisse's German entity. There is an audit committee. All of those folk have a fiduciary duty to the shareholders. There will be some who say that the directors rely on the reports from the external auditors. To that I will say, that is just way too easy of a cop-out. I would just love to be a prosecuting attorney in a courtroom on this subject. So, Mr Chairman, you would like us to accept that you simply relied on the work of the external auditors? Yes. What tests would you typically apply so that you could be comfortable that the numbers were plausible and probable? At which point we have a gotcha. He can only answer one of two ways. Either I don't, I trust the auditor and don't look, or I have some tests. If the answer is I don't apply tests, then I'd be following up with, isn't that a case of gross negligence? You simply accepted the numbers without asking any questions. If the chairman tried to explain some tests he applied, then I'd be in with the simple tests I mentioned above. This guy's going to jail, do not collect your pension, go straight to jail. Orange is the new black. A little exaggeration, of course, but you get the picture. What are the lessons learned here? Control. The basics matter. Evidence matters. Anybody who is tasked with verifying the items in the balance sheet, be they in internal control or in an audit function, or be they external auditors, has to make sure that they have irrefutable evidence directly from the source it confirms the balances. This applies whether they are assets or liabilities. It is worth a wider look beyond just the wirecard issue. My great friend Ranjit Guptara recently posted a great commentary on LinkedIn in which he asked, quis custodiet ipsos custodis? Who is auditing the auditors? This followed an article in the Times of London which reported that the UK regulator of auditors, 
the Financial Reporting Council, found one in three audits to be substandard. Not good and not good enough. Size matters. Do you understand what is normal? Normal means what is typical in this situation. That will be based on currency, entity size and even time. A BlackRock money market fund that has 100 billion under management might just have cash at bank of 1%. Maybe. But even then, that money would be with a major bank or custodian and not with an escrow agent in Singapore. Lastly, short selling is not a priori evil. It helps price discovery. All of these observations build on the comments that my very first podcast guest, Barry Lewis, made. You have to evidence that you are in control. A figure in a spreadsheet does not support a balance in the ledger. Always demand to see the external proof that substantiates the balance. Cash is king. The correct money in the correct bank account is the end goal. You've been listening to the latest episode in the podcast series, The Banker's Plumber, Lessons Learned, with me, Olaf Ransom, aka The Banker's Plumber.